mid-January, I went duck hunting with my cousins, my son, and some friends. Three hunts in two days with six or seven guns each time over rice and in flooded timber. We saw some ducks and worked a few, but no one ever fired a shot. It was a bad season from Missouri south. Too warm for too long up north and way too wet down here. You may have heard the old Jim Pinnock, Dean Higgins story about ducks in the cathedral. The Pinnock men were in church on Sundays as a rule until duck season when they disappeared. One year when the season was over and Jim reported back to church, the dean, shaking his hand at the door following the service, grumbled, We've missed you in church. People tell me they find God in the woods. I don't know about that. Well, Dean, Jim replied, and I'll clean this up a bit. I may or may not find God in the woods, but I darn sure won't find ducks in the cathedral. (laughs) So if not ducks, what do we find in the cathedral? Best answer I've heard yet was Marilyn Robinson's in her novel Home when the father tells his daughter why they go to church on Sundays. God doesn't need our worship. We worship to enlarge our sense of the holy so that, we can, so that we can feel and know the presence of the Lord who is with us always. From that I glean that worship here should widen our perception of God's presence elsewhere, including in the duckwoods. Still explaining, the father adds, love is what it amounts to a loftier love. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty. That is Isaiah the prophet, whose sense of the holy has been tripled by two angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, they chanted. These were seraphim, equal to cherubim as angels of the highest rank. Angel tradition tells us that the cherubim get excited by the truth and the seraphim by love. What Isaiah saw was holiness in love. His senses of holiness and loveliness reciprocally enlarged. For thus says the exalted and lofty one who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with those who are crushed and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the crushed. Isaiah gets excited. Here I am. Send me. He volunteers for ministry like I did 40 years ago, even without a vision. Now we face a problem. I'm remembering Howell Raines, a southern sportsman of Jim Pennock's generation. Raines' sport was trout fishing. Raines moved moved north to run the New York Times, and on Sunday mornings you would find him somewhere on a stream. Like many southerners, he explained, I was ruined for church by early exposure to preachers. That is the problem. (laughs) 
Make the mind of this people dull, God instructs, intending irony, and stop their eyes and shut their ears. God knows that that's what we so often do, we preachers and we Christians. Rather than enlarging, we obscure. Little girl in Pine Bluff once gave a compliment to my friend Richard Milwee, her priest and Virginia's grandfather. After church one morning, the little girl piped up, Mama, I like Mr. Milwee. He's not like the other preachers. Mama said, How's that? You know how like when they start talking, you just wish they would stop? (laughs) (laughs) So Howell Rains fled church and fished. And this week, his old newspaper, The Times, ran a column by a woman who as a child had been beaten over the head with the thought that she was a sinner. Sin, she writes, that tiny word still makes me cringe with residual fear. Fear of being judged unworthy. Fear of the eternal torture of hell. Fear of my father's belt. The Times titled her column, Raising Children Without the Concept of Sin. Her daughters, the author brags, don't even know the word. We can understand because her faith was a casualty of abusive preaching. Sin, though, is like the cat that you put out the front door only to find that it has come back inside through the living room window. In telling her story, the Times writer appeals to the reader's disgust at her parents' misbehavior. That's wrong, we know, making a moral judgment. Call bad behavior what you want. The Bible calls it sin. While enlarging our sense of God's merciful activity in dealing with it. Here is Jesus taking meals with known sinners, talking about lost sheep, lost coins, and lost children. There he is intervening for a woman taken in adultery. And now comes Paul, paring the gospel down to two essentials. I handed to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins and that he was raised. Paul means to stretch our sense of God to full capacity. In Christ, already we knew God's passive disposition to forgive us, but now we see him actively assume the consequences of our misbehavior. For our sins, he died. That intervention has been colorfully described as paying our debts or serving out our sentence or buying our freedom. There's a curious resemblance between Christian teaching on sin and a strain of Mahayana Buddhism called Pure Land Buddhism. First read about Pure Land Buddhism in a footnote in Karl Barth, and then in a book by John Cobb, a Christian theologian who preaches that Christians and Buddhists have a lot to learn from one another. Something that, that our two religions certainly share is struggle. As Christians, we wrestle with sin and often lose the battle. Buddhists strain towards enlightenment, nirvana, often coming up short. 
According to Cobb, Pure Land Buddhism arose to offer hope to those who failed. Those who shunned gross gross misconduct in life and called in faith to the Buddha at the moment of their death were granted an entrance to the Pure Land. This stage of life after death was a way station towards nirvana, where the moral and spiritual environment was friendlier to progress than is life as we know it here on earth, where moral and spiritual conditions can be harsh. Too cold, too warm, too wet, too dry. I'm thinking, for example, of life for combat soldiers or business owners working in a corrupt political environment or teens growing up in gang-infested neighborhoods. In the milder climate of the pure land, the moral choices aren't as difficult as they are here, and there are guides who lead the way. These are the bodhisattvas who, from compassion, have vowed not to enter nirvana themselves if that means leaving the multitudes behind. And so they come back for the lost sheep. According to legend, one bodhisattva was supreme. An Indian prince named Dharmakara perfected the pure land, and to the greatest possible extent, he simplified the rules for entering it. Just think of how easy we make it to be baptized here at Trinity, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. They call this pure land prince the Amida Buddha, According to Cobb, the Amida Buddha was regarded as the Savior. And that was the gist, that we humans need help morally and spiritually, and that we have this help in the person of a Savior. Bart described this Pure Land Gospel as, as far as I can see, the most comprehensive and illuminating parallel to Christian faith in another world religion. It was C.S. Lewis who once said that his believing Christianity is absolutely true did not entail his believing other religions altogether false. He wasn't suggesting, as some do, that each religion has its own truth. He meant that God doesn't hide from human beings. Our sense of the holy picks up that scent and answers to it. Theologians call this general revelation, The special revelation is the great epiphany in Christ, which confirms, corrects, and perfects the general. It shouldn't surprise us to find suggestions of the special in the general, as we do with the legend of the Amida Buddha. I think it would concern us if there were none. I handed to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins and that he was raised. Christ's death for our sins is strong medicine that we all need. His resurrection also is medicinal, and we need that too. How so? Tames our fear of death, for starters. But I'm also thinking of another problem. The resurrection presages a world where is and ought are reconciled. Is and ought. What is the case? and what ought to be. In our sin-prone world, they are often out of kilter, like a broken zipper. I'll give an example painful to my Louisiana kinfolk. 
The New Orleans Saints, as everyone agrees, ought to have gotten a penalty flag, a first down, and an easy kick with seconds left to beat the Rams and make it to the Super Bowl. Assuming they make that kick, ought was Breeze versus Brady in Super Bowl 53. But is was the ho-hum game we got last Sunday. The chasm between is and ought can open up beneath our feet in our lives at any moment, with bad calls in sports the least part of it. Every illness, crime, and many heartaches are examples. Christ's arrest and death was an example. And in his resurrection, is and ought were reconciled. People made whole and wrongs made right. That's how resurrection is medicinal. Something like that was Dean Higgins' point to Jim. We don't find this sort of information in the duck woods. That would be asking more of trees and birds than they know how to give. They're just not privy to it. Jim's point was that what they do bestow is still exquisite. The peace and quiet of daybreak on a winter morning, wind rustling through treetops, plaintive sounds of snow geese honking in the distance overhead. Suddenly right here, the squeal of a wood duck zooming by and gone before you even think to raise your gun. The slow day chatter among hunters swapping jokes and memories of mishaps with boats and leaky waders. Yarns about Louisiana gumbo mud stronger than Gorilla Glue. It broke Jennifer Wilson Harvey's leg, and that's the truth. Such Arkansas days are beauties of creation. It is right that we would love them and enjoy the respite that they bring.